So I think one of the advantages of this time change thing will be that at the end of the second service, people won't be quite as hungry sitting there because it's earlier. So that'll be an advantage. Um, it'll be a very good thing. So my stomach won't be growling at uh, the end of the sermon. Sometimes I'm worried if, that people can hear that. So um, anyway, uh, you can open your Bible up to Exodus chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. One of the things uh, that you will often hear uh, athletes talk about, sports are big in my house, especially with my 11-year-old son, um, probably to an unhealthy level, interested in sports. But uh, So one of the things you'll always hear athletes talk about is how important confidence is for them to compete at a high level, right? They'll say this after the game, they'll talk about it before the game, they need to be confident. They wanna go into the game assured that they can compete and that they can win. They wanna put in the practice and the work so that they're ready to go and they feel ready to go and they're sure of their ability and their preparation going into a game. Now, as, as someone who has played sports, uh, before uh, at a competitive level, there are moments in a game where you go in and you're quite confident of your ability and you feel ready to go. And then there are moments where that confidence gets tested and shaken. If you're a football team and you are pumped up for the game and you're sure that you have what it takes to defeat this other team and they come out and they receive the opening kickoff and go 80 yards down the field and score a touchdown in four plays with seemingly very little effort, then you may look at that and start to doubt your ability to, to win this game. Your confidence gets shaken. And so when that happens, you'll hear players say, yeah, it was tough at the beginning, but then we sort of got back to the fundamentals and remembered our preparation and we rebuilt our confidence to be able to compete in this game. Now, if you, if you read Exodus chapters 4 through where we are in chapter 6, I think that there's a, a pretty clear parallel there to what Moses is going through at this moment, right? He's like the football team that is very confident going into the game, and he's confident that he has what it takes to compete and to win. And then on the very first play of the game in Exodus chapter 5, he goes in with Aaron to talk to Pharaoh and at his first encounter, it's as if Pharaoh receives the opening kickoff and goes all the way down the field and scores a touchdown, and Moses is dumbfounded by this. I mean, he's been smacked around, and he's definitely doubting his participation, his readiness for the task that God has for him. He is lacking assurance, clearly in himself, and even that God is able to do what God has promised and that God will actually be able to deliver Israel from enslavement in Egypt. And so what does Moses do at this point? Well, unlike a good football team that sort of regroups and remembers the fundamentals and what got them there, Moses takes an entirely different approach. He turns inward and begins to look at himself and begins to examine his own ability and his own skill rather than looking outward to the Lord and we find these words in Exodus 6, verses 9 through 10. Why don't you look there? This leads us up to our passage for today. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And then here's Moses' response, verse 12. But Moses said to the Lord, 
Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Moses turns on himself. He talks about his own inability, his own lacking. And rather than turning his attention to God, the God who showed up at a burning bush, who called him, who equipped him to do this task, and who has promised over and over again to accomplish this task, Moses thinks about his own inability and his own lacking. But what's so amazing about this passage and what we're going to see today, and what's so amazing about the God who reveals himself here, is his response to Moses. I mean, at this moment, he could very easily say, okay, fine, Moses, just get out of the way. I will take care of this. You're done. If you're going to sort of mope in the corner there about your own lack of ability, I will take care of it. That's fine. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't chide Moses for struggling. He doesn't pull him out of the game and set him on the bench. Instead, what God does is he patiently and graciously reassures Moses that this is all part of his plan, that he is in complete control, and that he will use Moses and his brother Aaron in the way he has promised to accomplish his purposes. Now, I am, I'm confident this morning that many of you feel at times in the same way that Moses does here, right? You feel like you're a failure in the Christian life. Something goes wrong. You feel like you're unable to serve the Lord, to step out in faith and to do something for him. You feel like it, you're just not capable. You're not up to the task. Maybe life has smacked you around a little bit and you feel like that football team where, you know, the, the first play has, has not gone the way you wanted to or the first couple of plays, and it's quite difficult in those moments to keep God's good purposes in mind and to keep his character in mind. And it's quite difficult to continue to trust him and to look to him rather than, than turning inward on yourself. The beauty of this passage is that it paints a picture of a God who is lovingly reassuring his servant of his own promises and his own character and that he will do what he said he's going to do. He's a God who can be trusted. And you see that over and over again in the book of Exodus, and you'll see it again this morning. And so in Exodus 6, verses 13 through chapter 7 and verse 7, this is sort of a final preparation for the plagues. But what we have here is we have an instance of divine reassurance. I mean, that's what's happening here. Moses is down in the dumps. Things have not gone well right out of the gate. And God comes back to him and says, look, Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take care of this, and you're going to be a part of it, and I'm going to use you. And so this morning, as we look at this divine reassurance, here's what we're going to see. Sorry, four ways. It shouldn't be three ways. Uh, it should be four ways. I messed that up. Four ways that God reassures his servants of his purposes. Four ways that God reassures his servants of his purposes. And the first one of these, he confirms his call. And this is in chapter 6, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 27. So just a few moments, I read you, moments ago, I read you chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, and you saw how discouraged Moses is, and he's discouraged by Pharaoh's initial response, and Pharaoh actually makes things more difficult on the Israelites. And so Moses is expecting God to come through immediately and deliver the Israelites, and things get worse. And Israel's frustrated, they have a broken spirit, they're annoyed with Moses and Aaron for, for making this happen. And Moses at this point is doubting 
whether God has actually called him to this. How can he be used by God for this task? And God here in verse 13 recommits both to Moses and to Aaron that he's actually going to use them for his purposes. Nothing has changed despite the roadblock of Pharaoh's further enslavement and making things more difficult on the Israelites. Nothing has changed for for Moses. Look at verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now you can see there that it says that God gave them a charge. This can carry the idea of someone sending an individual on a mission, right? There's a task that this, purpose, this person is given to. They have been entrusted with this message or with this task that they are to carry out. And so what God is doing here is reaffirming his commitment to Moses and Aaron and saying, look, I have entrusted you with this. I have charged you to accomplish this task. I'm not casting you aside. You're not on the bench. You are still an important part of my plan for Israel. And so he affirms that here. He entrusts them with this task once again, and then If you're reading through the book of Exodus for the first time, something completely unexpected happens in the narrative here. And for us, it's almost, it's really, it is odd that this would come next in the passage. Beginning in verse 14, all the way to verse 25, you get everybody's favorite part of scripture, a genealogy. (laughs) And so, so you're reading through this and You read about God charging Moses and Aaron, and you're like, all right, yes, God's charging them, recommitting to the task, and then there's a bunch of names. It's a genealogy. And so you're going, what in the world? Like, why is this happening here? Why am I getting all of these names? Well, genealogies in Scripture, as I'm sure you know, are not accidental. They are not throwaway parts of the Bible. Genealogies carry some of the most important elements of the biblical narrative and of the story. They connect things that need to be connected to continue to unfold the plan of God. And this is another one of those examples of a perfectly placed and important genealogies. And we need to understand some of the specifics of this, and I am going to spare you having to sit there and listen to me read every single name in this genealogy out loud and struggle through it because my Hebrew is not top of my class. And so I'm going to avoid that. But I do want to, I do want to point out some specific things about this genealogy. It begins here in verse 14 with the oldest sons of Jacob, right? Remember the patriarch, Jacob, who has his name changed to Israel, and here are the first of his sons. Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. And then he lists the sons of Reuben. Then if you get to verse 15, the sons of Simeon, who was the secondborn, right? And so he lists the sons of Simeon. Then in verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi, who is the third board. And so maybe at this point, you're expecting that you're going to get another genealogy of the the 12 sons of Jacob, and you're going to just list all of those, but that's not what happens here. 
Instead, in verse 16, the focus goes to Levi and his sons are listed, and now the rest of this genealogy stays focused on Levi, all the way to verse 25. And so the focus of this is not on Jacob, it's not on Reuben or Simeon, but it's on Levi. Why? It's specifically on Aaron being a descendant of Levi. Look down at verse 20. Verse 20 specifically mentions both Moses and Aaron. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, which is interesting in and of itself, but uh, we won't get into that right now. Um, She bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. And so you see both Aaron and Moses are mentioned here, but the rest of the genealogy actually traces out Aaron's sons. And it even mentions Aaron's wife. And it even goes beyond Aaron to his sons and his grandsons, or his grandson, one in particular. Look down at verse 25. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. Now, if you read forward into the rest of the Pentateuch, you will know that Phinehas is a, basically a hero in the history of Israel. He intervened in a terrible, sinful situation and basically worked atonement for the nation of Israel so that God would not destroy them because of massive sin that was taking place. And so he is considered a hero in the history of Israel, and this genealogy draws attention to Aaron and his sons and his grandsons. And you can see it ends, these are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. Now, This genealogy is here for a couple of reasons, and let me point them out to you. First of all, it connects Moses and Aaron. We already knew Moses was a part of the tribe of Levi, but this explicitly, and at this point in the narrative, connects Moses and Aaron back to Levi, and therefore, because of Reuben and Simeon are mentioned, back to the patriarchs, and back to God's promises to his people in Genesis. And so what this genealogy is telling us is, look, God made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's sons, and these guys, Moses and Aaron, are a part of that. They are Israelites. They're not outsiders. Even if Moses has been out of the land for 40 years and raised as an Egyptian, these are not outsiders. These are Levites, and they're a key part of of God's purposes for the nation of Israel. And so this connects back to God's covenantal promises to his people. And the second thing this does is it highlights Aaron's role in being a mouthpiece for God and part of this deliverance. Aaron is going to play a key role in this story as Moses' partner and as Moses' mouthpiece. And so here, this focus on him says, yes, this is legitimate. He is an equal partner with Moses. And so this genealogy is confirming that these two individuals are part of God's covenant people, they're part of his plan, and Aaron in particular is a key part of this plan because we've already seen Moses and his call to ministry. Notice what comes after the genealogy. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts, verse 27, it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt And as if you don't know clearly enough, he writes again, this Moses and this Aaron, right? And so he's he's confirming that these are the two guys and this is their family history that God is going to use. 
He has called them, and this is who they are. Now, Moses and Aaron, I think, needed to be reminded of who they are here, of their history, of what God has done in calling their family hundreds of years earlier, specifically ordaining that they would come and be born in the line of Levi, the priestly line, those that would mediate between God and men. God has orchestrated all of this. They are a part of this, and they can be confident on his call in their lives. Now, let's transfer this forward and make a little bit of application to our lives. I don't think any of you are of the tribe of Levi. However, one of the most important Christian practices that you and I can do and we should be doing on a daily basis is to remember who we are in Christ. Keep in mind our identity. If you think about the New Testament epistles, Paul's letters in particular, Paul exhorts us with commands. There's there's ethical outworkings of our faith, but those ethical outworkings, those commands are always rooted in our identity. And our identity is that we are in Christ. We are united with him. We have been covered in his righteousness. Our sin has been removed. We are God's children in Christ. That is our identity. Things are different now in your life. You have received a new identity. And so Paul would say, in order to live as a follower of Christ, you have to constantly remind yourself of that identity. Go back to it. Remember who you are. Remind yourself daily of who you are and then be assured because of that of God's work in you and then through you. This brings us to our second way that God reassures his servants here out of the four. Four ways that God reassures his servants of his purposes. He confirms his call. He calls them to remember who they are, to remember what he has done in bringing about their ministry, their call, his, his calling on their lives. And the second thing he does, and I'll explain this, is he commands his method. To help reassure them, he makes it quite clear what their role is and what their responsibility is. And God has a unique method of working. Now, it's important here as you're reading along in this story that you, you understand that verses 28 through 30 are picking up the story from verse 12, okay? Okay. So if you, you flip back to verse 12, this is where we found Moses sort of moping on the bench. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Now verses 28 to 30 are not a new development in the story. It's the same thing that happened there. And so after this genealogy, this sort of commercial break, this aside here, this interlude, now Moses, the author, is picking up the same story because he wants you to see all of this as flowing in the same narrative. So verse 28, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses is not saying these words for a second time. It's the same time as verse 12. This is where Moses is at. And 
And notice what God says here to him. God affirms his name. That has been a key part of the book of Exodus. I am the Lord. This is the name that will be explained and the characteristics of this name and who he is will be drawn out in the book of Exodus. So he affirms his name and then he connects who he is to the action that Moses is supposed to take. Look at what he says. The Lord, verse 29, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. And then here's what Moses is supposed to do. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. So here's Moses's job. This is God's method. You listen to me and then you tell it to Pharaoh. That's it. That's what you do, Moses. That is your role in this. What's God's method for working in the book of Exodus? What are Moses and Aaron supposed to do? It's really pretty straightforward and simple. Not easy, but simple. They are to receive words from God, and then they are to open their mouths and communicate those words to Pharaoh. That's it. Look at verse, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. This takes us back to God's original call to Moses in chapter 4. He told Moses this very same thing, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. All of God's purposes, all of his work will be accomplished by Moses and Aaron opening their mouths and speaking God's words to Pharaoh. They are reporters in the best sense of the word. They report what has been told to them. They are messengers. They proclaim what they have heard. Now, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7 set up a little bit of irony, and there, I think there's a good bit of humor in what God says here um, to Moses about Pharaoh. So if you think back to chapter 5, where Moses and Aaron come into Pharaoh's presence and they tell him that Israel's God has said to let, let the people go, uh, Pharaoh responds by saying, who is the Lord? I don't know him. Why should I obey him? And one of the things we've talked about in the book of Exodus is how Pharaoh would have seen himself as divine. And even in his response to Moses and Aaron, he's setting himself up as a rival to Israel's God. He's saying, I'm divine. Who's the Lord? I don't have to listen to him. I don't even know who he is. I've never heard of this B or C rate God that you guys are proclaiming is the God of your people. And so Pharaoh sees himself as divine, and he doesn't have any reason to listen to Yahweh God. And so what does God do here? Well, he tells Moses that he's going to make Moses like God, another man, to Pharaoh. He's sort of going to stick it to him here and say, okay, fine, you think you're God. Well, I'm going to have my servant be like God to you to put you in your place. It's fascinating here. Pharaoh would have communicated, and we saw this in chapter 5, he, thinking himself divine, would have had messengers or prophets that he would have communicated his will through to other people. And we saw this when he changed the, the rules of Israel's work. And so he speaks, and then his prophets, his messengers go, and they speak. 
And so when God sets up this paradigm here of God speaking to Moses and then Moses having a prophet, Aaron, to speak to Pharaoh and Pharaoh only gets the words through the prophet of Moses or the prophet of God or Moses's prophet, this definitely would have communicated to Pharaoh where he ranks on the totem pole, right? God appoints Aaron as the prophet of Moses to indicate to Pharaoh that Moses speaks with divine authority, that he actually is representing God. And so all of this here is meant to reassure Moses that the results that are going to happen are out of his control. He just needs to stick to the method that God has given him. I mean, Moses may have been frustrated here because he thought, he believed that he had to do something to get this work accomplished. And so it doesn't happen and he's thinking, ah, I'm a failure. I cannot get this done. I can't even speak correctly. God here commands his method of working. He makes it quite clear. And Moses needs to simply listen and obey. And so what's amazing, I think, for Moses here is the pressure is largely off of him. I mean, it doesn't make it an easy task, but he knows what he has to do and the pressure is off. This is helpful because God graciously and kindly chooses to use weak and sinful people to accomplish his will. And that's what he's doing here. And then he equips those people to work for him. He equips them and gifts them with what he has called them to. He doesn't call us to do something and then just send us out on our own and say, okay, good luck. He calls us, he gives us his methods, and he equips us to do the work that he has called us to. And then he promises, as we do the work that he's called us to, that he will accomplish his purposes through us. And so I would ask, are you today, for application, are you resisting God's call to some area of service in your life today? And are you resisting it because you feel inadequate? You feel like, ah, oh, man, I am, I'm a bumbling mess. I cannot do this. I cannot work for the Lord. I cannot serve him. And what I would say that we learn from the example of Moses and from the character of God here is that God calls and God gifts his servants and he makes our responsibility quite clear. And that's what was true for Moses and Aaron here. Then, even beyond that, calling and gifting, then he graciously fits our task within his overall big picture purposes. And that's our third way that God reassures his servants of his purpose. He clarifies his purpose. He doesn't leave us in the dark here. He says, look, here is how you fit within all that I am doing and all that I am accomplishing. This is in chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. So we've heard some of this as, as we get into this, these next few verses. We've heard a lot of this before, right? But up until now, when God has spoken to Moses, his focus has been on delivering Israel. So it's very much been on getting them out of slavery and making them his people. Here, there's a, it includes that, but now there's a turn. And to help Moses and to reassure him, now the turn is God explaining in more detail his judgments on Egypt and what he's going to do to Egypt and why he's going to do these works to Egypt. Look at verse 3. 
But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In verse 3 here, God is telling Moses, setting out a little more clearly his expectations that this is not a one-and-done deal. Moses wasn't just going to walk into Pharaoh's throne room and say, let him go, and he was going to say, okay, fine. He's going to multiply his signs and wonders. There will be more than one miracle and sign that will be done here. He's going to multiply these, and as he does that, he says in verse 3, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I mean, this in and of itself would have been confirming to Moses because this says, this is a part of my plan too, Moses. What happened in chapter 5 where Pharaoh made things worse, that was part of my plan. I knew they were going to score the touchdown on the first play of the game. I can't get away from that football illustration this morning. I knew that was going to happen. I planned for that to happen. Why is God going to harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply signs and wonders? Look at verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. It's in order that God may bring judgment on Pharaoh and on the people of Egypt. In chapter 5, Pharaoh announces that he doesn't know the Lord and he feels no responsibility to obey him. And so God says here, okay, if that's true and you don't know me and you feel no responsibility to obey me, I am going to bring many signs and wonders in judgment on you and your people for this purpose, chapter 7 and verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When, here's how they'll know, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and when I bring out the people of Israel from among them. Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord, serves as a, a heading over all of the Exodus. And here God says, yes, that's right, and I'm going to let you know who I am. And I'm going to let you know who I am by revealing two aspects of my character. Judgment and salvation. Both of those are going to be put on full display in the book of Exodus. They will understand. Pharaoh will understand. Egypt, the Egyptians will understand. Israel will understand that sin and injustice will not be overlooked by God. He will not bypass them. He is a God of justice, and the plagues will come on Egypt and on Pharaoh as acts of judgment because they have persecuted and enslaved God's people. And the flip side of that coin, as judgment comes on Egypt, is God's gracious deliverance will come to Israel. Through acts of judgment, he will bring his people out of slavery. Judgment and salvation. Now, don't overlook those two character qualities of God. Don't look away from them too quickly because these are key aspects of who God is. 
People, all of us, live out of our conception and our understanding of who God is. You'll sometimes hear people say things like, well, I couldn't believe in a God like that. Typically when they're thinking about God's wrath or about his justice, you'll hear people say things like that. And then they'll dismiss God because of of some aspect of his character that they don't appreciate. It's unpalatable to them. And the thing is, is that the Bible consistently, overwhelmingly reveals the true God, the creator God, as a God of both judgment and salvation. And you cannot ignore the judgment part of that. And that's what we want to shy away from. Oh, you know, we love the deliverance. We love being brought out of slavery. We love the, that side of things. And it's not to put the judgment in opposition because they actually go hand in hand. But you cannot ignore or downplay the judgment and the justice and the righteousness part of this. Because without the judgment portion of this, you do not have the mercy. You do not have the deliverance. Both are there and both are shown and displayed in all their glory in the book of Exodus. And both of these together give us a glimpse of the true nature of God, who he is. And you and I have the opportunity in the book of Exodus to rejoice in our salvation and rejoice in the mercy that we have been shown as we see God's judgment and justice put on full display in these signs and wonders. We have been saved from judgment, delivered from wrath. One author put it like this. The transformation the church needs is the kind that results from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, great. We need to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's right. This glory of God is a saving and judging glory. An aroma of life to those being saved and death to those perishing. And this saving and judging glory is at the center of biblical theology. Open your Bible anywhere and you will find justice and deliverance, judgment and salvation. God means to reveal himself in an astonishing display of his mercy and justice with the justice highlighting the mercy. Romans 5 and verse 9 makes this clear and brings these two together. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, how? By his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The justice of God, the judgment, the wrath of God fell on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that brings us salvation. The shedding of blood, the sacrificial death, the justice highlights the mercy. It draws attention to the mercy that we have received. Christ saved us from real wrath because God is actually angry over sin. He actually has wrath over sin. He doesn't dismiss it casually. I mean, he's a God of grace and mercy, and he's a God of grace and mercy along with a God of wrath. Our sin is a full-scale assault on the glory of God. 
It is a denial of his position as the sovereign, holy king of the universe. We are essentially saying as his creatures, no. I don't believe that. I don't want that. I would like to be in that position. It is a full-scale assault on his glory, and it deserves eternal wrath and justice. Judgment and salvation come together in the book of Exodus in a powerful way, and that anticipates and prepares us for how justice and salvation come together in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is going to use this book over the next few chapters, the whole thing really, to put on full display his glory and his character in judgment and salvation. Now, he tells Moses this here as a way of sort of drawing Moses' attention back, sort of zooming out and giving him a big picture of what he's going to accomplish. Moses is sort of caught up in the weeds and the details of this. And God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reveal my justice and my salvation. I'm going to judge Egypt, deliver Israel, and my glory is going to be spread even to pagan people through this. So he pulls back and gives him a 30,000-foot view of this. And one of the things I think this does for Moses, and then for us as well, is it, it helps us to see that God's work goes far beyond you or I. I mean, what he's doing is so big and so massive in revealing his glory that we get a part to play in it, which is awesome, but it's a small part. Even Moses here is really a small part in what God is doing. I think about this past year and all the craziness of this past year, the cultural turmoil, the pandemic, all of it. And it's, it's been significant. There's no doubt about it. It's been a rough year for so many people in so many ways. But you know what was true in March of 2020, a year ago, and is still true in March of 2021? I mean, zoom back for a minute, right? I mean, get out of the weeds of the pandemic and the cultural turmoil and sort of pull back. And don't forget about those things. They're important. They're part of our lives. It's our circumstances in which God is working. But just zoom back for a minute and look up and see that God is a God of justice and of salvation. And this past year, while we've all been doing our thing and complaining about masks and the government and all that stuff, God is doing his thing. And he is still accomplishing his purposes. And he is making his name known throughout the entire earth through his justice and his salvation, through his gospel. And one day, zoom out, he is going to gather his church together. He's going to come back for his church, and we are going to be with him for all eternity. I mean, that's the big picture, right? That's what he's doing. That's what we're here this morning to rejoice in. And so, yeah, the pandemic is frustrating. I get it. I don't like wearing a mask. But at the same time, do you see what God is doing in the world? Zoom back and think about that for a few minutes. And let the frustration sort of subside and rejoice in his glory and his justice and his salvation. And he's accomplishing his purposes, even in the midst of all this. And so what's our response to that? I love this. The last of our four ways. We, this is how God reassures us. He paints the big picture. And then our role in this, under his Lordship and leadership is that we commit to obedience. 
I love verses 6 and 7. Look there. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Two 80-year-old dudes hearing what God says and acting on it. How fantastic is that? I had a high school teacher who fought in Vietnam. It was a major, two Purple Hearts. I love him. And he, in his 80s, 70s and 80s, left teaching to go be a missionary in China. And he would take trips over there all the time. And his, one of his favorite Bible characters was Caleb, who at a very old age, as they go into the promised land, says, Lord, I want this particular area. I want this mountain. He's an old guy. And, he's, and my teacher, Mr. Woolridge, would always say, I want to be like Caleb. Lord, give me this mountain, you know. And I love this. They hear what God says, and they just do it. Regardless of age, regardless of where they're at in life, they just do it. And you know what is true of this is when we act on what God says, it brings us further assurance. There's a, there's a confidence that comes as we act and as we just simply obey. We are meant to be doers of the word and not just hearers. So when we, when we listen and we don't act on it, then of course we're going to have turmoil. And of course we're not going to be confident in what the Lord is doing. Perhaps you and I struggle with faith at times because we don't act on what we hear consistently. That's what Moses and Aaron do here. And I love this in the, in the whole flow of the book of Exodus. This sort of feels like a turning point in the story. As you're reading this through, you get to these very clear statements. They did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. And it feels like a turning point here. And their confidence has been built up. And they believe in God and they trust him. And so they do exactly what he says. And things really start to move from here on out. And the whole story of the plagues begins to unfold in the rest of chapter 7 and all the way into chapter 11 and 12. So here we believe in God and then we do everything he asks of us and this sort of obedience brings reassurance and boldness in our lives. So what is the the next step for you that God is calling you to? Not some mystical call, but what is the next thing you need to obey him on? requires obedience of you. So don't just sit and try to gather up the confidence that you think you need. Do. Act. Obey. Go. Put it into practice. Even if you mess up, even if you fail, even if it's not perfect, that's okay. We've already seen God is at work in the midst of our failures, our doubts, the times that we messed up. Just trust him enough just enough to say, he said this and I'm going to obey it. I'm going to go for it. And when that happens, he will reassure us and he will work in us and he will work through us to bring his name glory. Let's pray. God, we're amazed at your work, even this morning, the work that you do through broken vessels like us. Lord, who are we? we? We're nobodies, but Lord, we want to see you work. We want to see your fame spread throughout this area, downriver, 
throughout the city of Detroit, the surrounding areas, throughout the whole world, Lord. We, we would love to be used by you to accomplish this purpose of spreading your glory and your fame. And so reassure us this morning of your purposes, of your methods, of your call on us as followers of Christ. And then, Lord, help us to respond in obedience, just to simply trust you and do the next thing, to act on what we hear, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your reassuring love. Thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.